Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the podcast, we're looking at a company accused of fueling the opioid epidemic in the U.S., In the last few years, a series of exposés have connected the philanthropic Sackler family's billions to sales of OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. And while more than a thousand lawsuits from cities and states across the country have accused the company of deceptively marketing the prescription painkiller, a new case is targeting members of the family itself. So how did the drug maker fuel the market for opioids? So uh, you have to go back a long time to when the uh, three original Sackler brothers were alive, Arthur, Raymond and Mortimer. They had a British company called Knapp Pharmaceuticals and scientists there um, happened upon a new sort of type of pill which could sort of kind of think about it like dripping the drug into the body over a very long period of time. David Crow covers pharmaceuticals for the Financial Times. So most painkillers have a four or five hour half-life and then the effect begins to wane. This managed to sort of get, they say, 12. So they found this system, it's called the Contin Delivery System. And they developed quite an important uh, new drug called MS-Contin, which was a new form of morphine. Now, morphine used for decades, if not centuries, to treat pain, end-of-life cancer pain. And so this 12-hour thing was quite important because until then, to be on pain relief, if end-of-life cancer care, you either had to be in a hospice or a hospital where you could be on a drip or you were getting pills, you were taking pills, um, oxycodone pills or morphine pills or whatever. And the problem with the pill, it was wearing off after four or five hours and people couldn't sleep through the night. So already, you know, it's a terrible part, period in anyone's life. They're dying and they can't get a good night's sleep. And so MS Quantum was an important invention. And so what was the business model that the Sackler brothers ended up building around this system or this invention? Well, the problem they had is they didn't build much of a business. It was a sort of drug, modest commercial success. But certainly, you know, we would never be talking about it, you know, in, in the same breath as Viagra or whatever. It was not a blockbuster. But what happened, as happens to all drugs, is its patent approached expiry. And so the drug was going to go generic. And this was pretty much all the company made. And the company was probably not going to survive. And so they reformulated a new drug which took a different opioid and melded it with the Contin system again. So we had morphine, which was MS-Contin, and then this time they took oxycodone and they turned it into oxycontin. And they launched that in 1995. And initially it was really supposed to be a new and improved version of the old drug. And it was supposed to be given to the same patients 
same end-of-life terminally ill cancer patients. Now, it doesn't really matter if a terminally ill cancer patient becomes addicted to opioids because sadly they're going to die anyway. And so addiction has never been much of a problem. But then the big thing that this all turns on, they get a label from the US Food and Drug Administration that allows them to market it not just to cancer sufferers, but to anybody suffering from moderate to severe pain that is not controlled by another type of painkiller. And at that point, they start marketing it to pretty much every doctor out there for every common pain ailment from post-surgical pain, dental pain, pain after surgery, back pain, you name it. And then the market starts to swell. Kind of like a fix for every bit of pain a patient might be experiencing. Tell us more about how this marketing strategy worked. When they really talked up the benefits of the 12-hour system, they said this sort of 12-hour content system. And they said, look, there's more, there's a higher chance of uh, addiction if and, and, and abuse if you have these short-acting opioids because people are meant to be taking them every four to five hours and, you know, they're wearing off and they're jumping it by an hour or two and before you know it, they're taking them every three and then before you know it, they're taking them every one and then they're taking two every hour and so on. So the benefit of our pill, it's one pill every 12 hours and you don't have that addiction risk. The problem was it was an extremely high concentration of oxycodone because you're taking, you normally you'd have to take six pills to get what you're getting in oxycontin. And so then it was two problems, very high dosage so that ordinary legitimate patients were getting high. But also the other problem was that, you know, if, if a drug abuser got, got hold of this, they could crush up the drug and get all 12 hours worth in a single hit. And that is why it became known as heroin in a pill, because, you know, until then, there was no drug that offered that kind of high on the market. So what was the first big legal case against Purdue Pharma? first indication that there was going to be a legal problem for them would have probably sort of emerged around about end of 1999, early 2000, um, the Department of Justice start looking into Purdue and specifically into this claim that the drug is safer than other opioids because this is not something the FDA has allowed them to say. And in 2003, uh, Richard Sackler, who is the at that point the president of the company, he resigns. And then in 2007, they get this plea deal with the Department of Justice where they pay a $600 million fine, ad- admitting to misbranding OxyContin um, and misleading doctors and patients. Um, and the three top executives, luckily not Richard Sackler now because he has stood down, but the three top executives take the rap and uh, off they go into the sunset. And then post-2007, you know, they, they, they regroup, they hire um, more uh, salespeople uh, and, and they kind of go back to it really and sales hit their peak in uh, 2010, I believe, at $3 billion a year. And what was different this time around? 
Well, one thing they stop doing is they stop saying um, this is safer. Um, that's the only thing the FDA or, or the, the Department of Justice got them for. There was nothing saying you can't say that this is for back pain and chronic pain. There was nothing saying you can't pay your salespeople, you know, market leading bonuses, which they did. There was no saying you can't send your salespeople on holidays to the Caribbean and Hawaii. So what they did is they stopped saying it was safer and they kept everything else the same. And so that continues to grow the opioid market. And indeed, I spoke to one sales rep, who whistleblower, who was on the record talking to us, who says, you know, that they were told to infer to doctors that indeed it was safer, that, um, that you didn't have to say this is safer. You could talk about the dangers of the other short-acting opioid drugs instead. So she said it was, you know, implicit and, and they were told doctors are clever people. They'll, they'll, they'll know what you're saying without you actually having to come out and say it. They funded a lot of research into painkillers as well, ostensibly showing that the, the risks of addiction were overstated. They, you know, wined and dined doctors and took them, you know, on, on nice trips too. And they also sort of made pain part of the conversation in a way that it had not been before. They, you know, they sort of helped coin this thing called the fifth vital sign, which was pain made it sort of seem as though pain were very untreated and, and a big unmet medical need. And so, you know, they did a lot more than just directly marketing OxyContin. A lot of the other players were generic players. They have very low margins. Uh, they sell their pills for not very much money, uh, for the most part, and they tend not to have sales forces. So as one of the sources told me when I was reporting this, a former, a former employee of Purdue they might have only been 2% of prescriptions, but they were 100% of the sales force. And that is why people think that they, more than any other company, are responsible. And what did he mean by that? 2% of prescriptions, but 100% of the sales force? So although Purdue has a small share of the market in terms of prescriptions, about 1.7 or 2% of the overall opioid market, depending on how you measure it, they are, without a doubt, the largest marketing force out there. And so the charge, the allegation is that in, in, in so aggressively and zealously promoting their own drug, they also put hot air into the entire market and, and sort of grew the pie, if you like. So while their share of scripts is low, they were the juggernaut that was out there that was making opioids into a multi-billion dollar market. What else happened in the months after Purdue settled that case with the DOJ? There was a separate company that was formed, I, I, I believe, by the name of Rhodes Pharma. Yep. So they set up Rhodes Pharma, I think, in the autumn of 2007, just a few months after they had done that settlement with the DOJ. And Rhodes Pharma is a big producer of generic opioids. And this undermines one of Purdue's main arguments, which is, as I mentioned before this, we are 1.7 or 2% of the overall prescriptions. Now, Rhodes is actually bigger in terms of volume, not in terms of uh, dollar sales, because its pills will sell for a lot less than OxyContin will, but more in, in volume. And it takes them up to being one of the larger players, sort of, you know, I think nearly number seven or just behind Teva, which is a huge company. 
Um, and certainly larger than a lot of the other companies that are often mentioned in litigation like Johnson & Johnson and Endo. So it undercuts one of their main arguments that actually we're sort of smaller than the amount of attention uh, we're getting. And also, for a long time, they said the problem is generic opioids. They're the real dangerous ones, the ones that don't have abuse deterrent, you know, formulas that are not 12-hour release and so on and such forth. But they make generic opioids as well. And how did you, David, how did you find out that Purdue was behind this Rhodes? It's one of, it was one of these stories where, you know, one key piece of information and everything started to fall into place. And so I spent a long time talking to people working at, at the company or who have worked at the company. A lot of people, as you might imagine, have left uh, recently. You know, there are people out there that have got recent knowledge of the company, but, but don't work there anymore. And somebody said, well, you really should look into this guy called Stuart Baker. He is a lawyer at a New York law firm, but I'm pretty sure he just works for Purdue. He has an office in Purdue's building. He's an executive vice president here. And I think he's really powerful um, and is pulling a lot of the strings. And so I did that. And he signed the company registration documents for Rhodes, not the Sackler family. And it was that that made me realize there was some kind of connection. And when I asked the company, they didn't deny it. I got past an employee handbook that, that mentioned a Rhodes site, which ended up being uh, Rhodes Pharma. So that was how it all dropped into place. And, you know, it kind of goes to the point of, I mean, I've been a reporter on both sides of the Atlantic and, and the way companies are registered in the US makes it very difficult to get to to the bottom of who actually owns them. In this case, you know, it's a Delaware corporation, you know, it's really hard to get hold of the original filing documents. And of course, if you don't know Stuart Baker is Purdue's attorney or is the Sackler family's attorney and works for Purdue, then you're never going to spot the connection. And particularly so because we're talking about a private company here. They're not, you know, held to the same standards that a publicly traded company would be in terms of reporting. What else did you find out about this man, Stuart Baker? Anywhere you see the Sackler family name, you see the Stuart Baker name as well. So, for, for instance, you know, they have a, a British pharmaceuticals company I mentioned earlier called Nat Pharmaceuticals. Well, guess who's on the board of that? Stuart Baker. They have a big, sprawling waterfront uh, property in, in a lovely gated community in, in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. Who owns it technically? Whose name is it held in? Stuart Baker's name. And so he's just kind of like, you know, very closely, you know, entwined with their lives and their business interests. He's also their attorney. He's the architect of their legal strategy. And why is that of particular interest or importance to the story of Purdue Pharma and the family behind the company? This all matters because if if the if the lawsuits against Purdue, of which there are more than a thousand now, have any chance of success, um, the litigators will have to prove that the Sacklers were running the show. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, Richard Sackler steps down in 2003 from executive office at the company. Um, and, and as I understand it, all, all of the other Sacklers have also sort of just, just on the board now and owners. You know, if indeed this man, Stuart Baker, who's, you know, incredibly close confidant of the family and has been with them for years is wielding significant influence at the company, then that is one 
instance in which prosecutors might be able to show or litigators might be able to show that, that they are really, you know, uh, pulling the strings. The one that's getting the most attention at the moment is a Massachusetts Attorney General uh, suit in which the Sacklers were named as individual defendants, or at least eight of them were, including Richard Sackler and and various uh, family members. And this was seen as important because it moved the focus of the legal fight from Purdue to the family. And it's not entirely clear, you know, um, the Attorney General in Massachusetts hasn't said well, why she's done this. But but when you talk to people working on the legal fight, lawyers and attorneys, they say there's a worry out there that Purdue may not actually have enough cash to settle. That OxyContin sales, at least in recent years, have declined amid all the poor publicity. And of course, I, I think that Purdue have really, ramped, you know, they've sacked most of their sales force. They're not promoting OxyContin to doctors anymore. Sales are going to have taken a hit. Meanwhile, the legal liabilities are translating into hefty legal bills. And and also the, the Sackler family, are, as owners, will have taken some money out of the company in the form of dividends in recent years. And so there's a fear that actually when all is said and done and, and, and they get, get there, that actually Purdue won't be able to pay. And so this is an attempt to put pressure on the family because, as one person told me, the family is where the money is. We should know that for your recent stories on the company that have been published in the past few days, you've asked the Sackler family to respond, uh, but they have not. Purdue has also vigorously denied these accusations elsewhere, maintains that it did not mislead healthcare providers about prescription opioids. What else has Purdue said in the past, David? Since I've covered this uh, story, their defense has kind of shifted. At the moment, they, their main line of defense, and, and one must admit it is probably the sort of, it's, it's a strong line of defense. Our drug was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It is still approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for exactly the same indication that we won initial approval for in 1995 or 96, whenever the actual, you know, final approval came through. And the US FDA is the highest, you know, regulator in the land in the US when it comes to medicines. And frankly, its judgment is um, more important or, or matters more, holds more store than the attorney general in Massachusetts or the town mayor in, in whatever town in whatever county is, 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 is suing them. They're hoping that that gives them a, a level of, of, of legal sort of security Undoubtedly, the Food and Drug Administration has questions to answer to. And in the meantime, as this case unfolds, you've uncovered another element of the Purdue story that the company was awarded earlier this year a patent for reformulation of a drug that I believe was used to wean addicts off of opioids. I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, you you make the the, the sort of the problem and the cure, right? And so, yes, it's a it's a patent. And actually, in the way this was all sort of formulated, actually patented through Rhodes Pharma, not Purdue Pharma. So again, had I not found out about Stuart Baker and then not found out about Rhodes, I would not have found this patent either. And it's for a sort of faster acting, more quickly dissolving form of buprenorphine. 
And buprenorphine is like modern methadone. It's like methadone, but better. And it's used to sort of wean uh, drug addicts off of opioids. Now, an interesting sort of theory emerging a little bit among my contacts and the people who, who know this, people starting to wonder, maybe will the Sattler family end up gifting this uh, in some way as some kind of recompense for uh, their role in the crisis? Could it be used to, to lower their legal settlement? Could they say, here you go, have this free buprenorphine, sort of better buprenorphine, and, and you know, lower your cost, you won't have to buy that drug anymore, at least. You know, could the Sacklers end up setting up a network of rehab centers? Is there some kind of social settlement that they're going to try and cut uh, to, to, to mean that they don't have to end up handing over billions of dollars? I suppose whether there's a philanthropic motivation behind the new patent or just another way to sort of, you could say, diversify the business, that that all remains to be seen. We just don't know. Thanks, David. David has done extensive reporting on the opioid crisis in the U.S., on Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. You can read more on all of this at FT.com. We'll be back next week. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.